Welcome to the Universal Dancer Podcast with your host, Leslie Zare, author of The Alchemy of Dance and The Alchemia Remedies, coming to you live from Cairo, Egypt, the ancient land of Chem. Journey with us to explore sacred dance, the sacred arts, the mystical and the magical. Join a community of like-minded souls seeking to understand the cosmic dance of co-creation through the sacred arts. Come along and expand your mind, ignite your creativity, and explore something new and something old. Welcome to the launch of the Universal Dancer podcast. I'm so happy to finally get a chance to begin. <laughs> I've been waiting since uh, since November. In November, I was supposed to produce a sacred dance summit, and then I I didn't. It didn't feel right, and I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. Here we are. It was suggested to me by my son that I needed to do a podcast, and really, when I sat with the the idea of doing a a summit, it really didn't feel right. So, so we're going to try something else. And as I said, I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more as we get further into this. So, welcome everybody. I'm glad you could join us. And what I'd like to do, I think, is. First of all, I want to tell you that there is more information about the podcast. You can find that on my website, which is www.universaldancer.com backslash podcast. And there you'll find the up and coming episodes, a list of the speakers, and, and I will keep posting and updating that as things fall into place. So what I'd like to do is I would really like to just jump into the topic for tonight. I am the host and the guest tonight for this launch. And I really want to talk about the universal dancer and to kind of explain what that is. Those of you who have read my book, The Alchemy of Dance, Sacred Dance as a Path to the Universal Dancer, you probably have a good idea of what the universal dancer is. But for those of you who don't, I want to talk about that a little more deeply. It fits into the whole theme of the podcast, as well as being something, obviously, that is important to me, but has unfolded in, in kind of a new way. So that's why I want to explain what happened and, and how I got here and where we're going from here. So just to explain a bit about the universal dancer. The universal dancer is an archetype. It's the last card in the tarot. It's often called the world or the universe or the universal dancer. And I'm talking about the major arcana in the tarot. So the tarot has 21 cards, the major arcana, and the number 21 is the universal dancer. Now it also has zero, and zero basically is the fool or the seeker. Each of us, as the fool or seeker, however you would like to see yourself, goes through this spiritual journey, 
And basically what it is, is it's the alchemical process. And if you set up the tarot, if you line it up in three different rows, having the, the fool by itself, but you put it in three different rows, this is the process. This is the alchemical process. So basically what we do on a spiritual path or in, in our own personal alchemy is that we really go through each one of these stages. We may not go through them in order, but it is this path to enlightenment. So that last piece, that 21st card, the universal dancer, is basically the gold in alchemy, or it's the dance of co-creation. This is the point that we want to get to. If, uh, and again, I'm, I'm speaking if you're on a spiritual path. Not everyone is. I'm assuming that everybody that, that's here probably is, or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Those people who are not, that's their choice, and that's fine. But I'm talking, I'm speaking to people who are on a, some kind of spiritual journey. So they're going through this journey of transformation to reach this point, this point, this last point, the universal dancer, which is the point where everything comes together, where everything is integrated and we dance with the universe. It's that dance of co-creation. Now, I want to talk a little bit about co-creation because I want to explain what I mean when I say co-creation. These are all words that, that I think people assume they know what they mean or that there is some standard meaning. And obviously, in everything, there is meaning, but there's also our interpretation of it. I feel that some time ago, maybe not right now, but some time ago, when we talked about co-creation, people looked at it as kind of a power struggle in the sense that now I get to decide my outcome or I get to decide, I get to co-create with the universe, I get to be boss. And I don't think that that's true. My belief is, and this is my belief, that life unfolds, that there's this spiral, which is our DNA. But this spiral is phi, the Fibonacci sequence. And you see this unfolding in everything. You see it in hurricanes. You see it in, in flowers as they unfold. So the way I'm looking at it is that each person has their individual path, their individual unfolding, but it's always in this spiral. And again, we see infinite things taking on this spiral. So there's infinite varieties of this spiral. We're, we're unlike anyone else, but it all unfolds in the same manner. And I believe that this unfolding is what's in our DNA. It's our own personal unfolding. Our job, if you want to call it that, our goal or how we reach the universal dancer is to walk that path and to walk it as best we can and to do what we need to do to allow this unfolding. And I work a lot with, with plants, but especially flowers. And the flower is really that last stage, that gold. It's that blossoming. And that's why things like flower remedies are so important, because that plant has gone through their path 
And now they've come to the end, that point of blossoming, where they've gained the wisdom and, and that flower opens. So we can learn a lot from that. And plants are not resisting what their path is. If it's a broccoli seed, it's going to grow as a broccoli. It doesn't want to be a cabbage or something else. It's a broccoli, but it wants to unfold to the best of its ability. It's that seed that's planted and then unfolds. And I think that we're the same way. We have this seed, which for us is our DNA, and then it unfolds in some way. And that pattern is that, again, as it is for plants, is that spiral, that phi ratio. Now, what's interesting about phi is that it, so let's talk about the Fibonacci sequence and let me just explain what that is briefly for anyone who doesn't know what that is. So the Fibonacci sequence is what creates phi or this spiral. And we find the numbers in the sequence by adding numbers together. So we, if we start with one, you have one plus one equals two. Then you take the product two and you add it to the number before. So you have the past, the present, and the future. Then you have a new past and present, which is two. That's the new present. And one is the new past. Two plus one equals three. That's the new future. Then we keep moving along. We have two plus three equals five. And when you plot all of this on a graph, you actually get a spiral. And that spiral comes out to phi, which is a ratio. And what's important about ratios is that they are relationships between two things. So always in math class, we want to, instead of using pi, which is different from phi, we want to use 3.14. But the fact that it never, it's a, one of those never ending numbers, because it isn't a number. Trying to make it a number is to, trying to make it fixed. And it's not fixed. It's a ratio. It's dynamic. So phi is the same way. We can divide it out and it's 1.07 or, or something. I, it's not in my mind. Doesn't matter. It's this ratio. And we can create this ratio using the numbers in the sequence. Now, what's interesting about this and relates to our spiritual path or this dance of co-creation is that you don't have to begin with one. You can begin anywhere. You can begin with 300. Now, this is something that I learned from my friend uh, Maureen Saint Germain, and she teaches the flower of life. And this was something she was speaking about in one of her classes that you can begin anywhere. And after three sequences of numbers, you get back to this phi, to this ratio. Well, that made me realize that that's the explanation for this, what I call the rule of three. This is something that I used on my path early on, was that if I heard something three times, then I pursued it. So if I heard someone's name three times, then I would call that person because I knew that there was something that I needed to know or something important in this because it, it kept coming to me. So this explains why these things happen in threes because if we have this spiral obviously these are there it's all made up of little points well if we go in the wrong direction then it actually takes three incidences to get us back 
on the spiral, back on phi. So I thought this was so beautiful. And that's what I mean about this dance of co-creation. The universe is conspiring with us to always get us back to our path, but we have to listen and we have to learn to, to do that dance. And I think using the concept of dance is a great analogy for this bigger cosmic dance because think of it as a, as a, a partnered dance where the universe moves and then you counter that move and you just constantly are having this back and forth dance. <laughs> I keep using the same word, but it keeps coming back to the same thing. That is what I mean by co-creation. So when I co-create, I'm not trying to change something. I'm not trying to change the dance steps. I'm trying to learn the dance. And, and with my free will, I'm trying to allow this seed that was planted, I'm trying to nurture it, and I want it to unfold in the best way possible. So in order to do that, I listen, I move with the universe in order to find my way. Because most of us are not clear about what our path is. And even if we're clear about it, things are changing all the time. I don't think we can have vision far enough ahead to plot some kind of a course to tell us exactly, you know, the seven-year plan of how we're going to get there. I don't, to me, that doesn't make any sense. If we live in this dynamic relationship, in this dance with the universe, then we're constantly allowing it to unfold to the best of its ability. So this feeling, as started as a feeling, is what led me to sacred dance. And to me, that's what sacred dance is, is this dance with the divine, this dance with the universe. So my main focus for the last 25 plus years has been mainly with sacred dance as a modality for myself, as a modality for me as a seeker to walk this path, to follow the tarot and to live these archetypes and to have these experiences. And the reason that I think that dance is so important, and I'm going to say sacred dance because I mean this kind of intentional dance, is that it allows us to practice surrender. And I think that in our Western minds, we've all been brought up and programmed in schools and taught that we need to control things, that we need to control outcomes, which I don't think we can, nor should we want to, but that's what our programming is. So I think it's really difficult if you're kind of programmed in this Western mind to really surrender and just allow things to unfold and to surrender and then to watch for the signs from the universe to guide us on this path that we don't necessarily understand. And I don't think we should. I think we need to intuit it as we go along. But we've become so left brain, believing that we need to control things, that I think this is really difficult. And for me, this was a big part of my journey to Egypt, because in Egypt, you have to surrender. You, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you think you're going to control something, and it, it never happens that way. I think that you know Egypt is tests you in that way of forcing you to surrender. And then to be creative 
and find a new way. That's the thing is that, okay, I can get something done, but I need to surrender to how that's going to happen and allow it to happen. For me with sacred dance, it's a way to practice this. We don't have ways to practice, so practical ways to practice surrender. We often surrender at the end of something when we just throw our hands up in the air and say, okay, there's nothing I can do. But that I don't think we should have to get to that point. Let's practice it. Let's stop and listen and intuit and and do this dance with the universe. Okay, that door closed, then yes, another one's going to open. And where is that? And to just be in that constant flow and that the way to do that is through surrender. So again, I think dance, sacred dance, is a wonderful analogy, a wonderful way to practice this cosmic dance, this unfolding, and to get yourself into the flow, because that's what we're doing. We're listening to the music, so the music can be our guide, and then we follow that. We follow the music. The music is dynamic. Where does it go? We react to that. We hear something else. We react to that. And eventually, if you really allow yourself to flow with the music, you just, you know the music. You know what's coming before you ever hear it with your ears. And I think that that's the place we want to be. That's where we want to go. Hopefully, that's how we live our lives. But we need a way to practice that. So that, to me, is what sacred dance is. And I think that all along this path, now I'm going back to the, the tarot and, and this alchemical path to take us to that place, are different little things, different little gifts or exercises or challenges or whatever you want to, to call them. So for me, when I wrote The Alchemy of Dance, really I was focusing on that first line of the tarot and sort of trying to find exercises and explanations for each one of those particular cards as we went along. But then we go further down the tarot into these, into these, other, these other realms, which we can explore with dance or we can explore in other ways. This kind of leads me into how I came to do a podcast. As the universe <laughs> gives you those, those little pieces um, and always tells us where we or shows us where we need to go. So when COVID happened back in, I think for us here in Egypt, it was back in March that that things really started to happen. It was not at all stressful for me because I've pretty much been living my life like this for the last five years. Since I closed the center here in Cairo, I took everything online. I've been teaching online and, and that's been my main way. I am a, a Virgo with a Virgo North node, which means that my South node is Pisces which really means that my comfortable place is in the monastery. So my house became like my monastery and I kind of just withdrew the typical hermit Virgo. I withdrew into my little monastery and I've been living like that for the last five years, doing my online courses and being creative, but in that sort of a way. So when the pandemic hit and we had lockdown, I was ready. And it, it really didn't 
change my life much, except that I actually, within my family, my children and my grandchildren and myself, we had a very tight circle of who we interacted with. So, so I actually interacted more with my children than I had before because they were limited <laughs> to who they could interact with. So we saw each other a lot. So that was really nice. So the pandemic didn't really change my life except maybe for the better. And I don't want to say that in a, in a way that I am taking advantage of the situation or not realizing that there are a lot of people who are suffering. But I honestly was not one of them. And I'm very thankful for that. But what did happen was that March and April and May were okay. And then summer happened. And that was just horrible. I swore to myself last year that I would not stay in Egypt again over the summer because it's incredibly hot, which one would expect. But over the past few years, it's become really humid, which I just, I can't bear humidity. The heat is okay. I can stay in the shade, but the, the humidity is, is not okay. So summer came and all those activities that I had added to my what I had already been doing, the classes and such, pretty much ended because it was just, for me, too hot to do anything. So finally, after resisting for a while, I just surrendered to it. And I realized that I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't going to be able to leave Egypt. And there was nothing I could do about the heat. So basically, I sat on the couch with a fan blowing on me, and that's how I spent many months. But always, again, the universe pushes you in some direction that you wouldn't have chosen, and, and I wouldn't have. I mean, I had made a plan that I was not staying here again because the heat was just bothering me too much. And the pandemic pretty much closed that door. So finally... When I surrendered and realized I was going to be sitting on the couch for many months because it was really too hot. I, it was too hot for me to be creative, to even sit and create a new course or something. I just felt like my brain wasn't really working very well. So what I did was I watched podcasts. I spent the summer sitting on the couch in front of the fan watching podcasts or reading books. And I hadn't actually done that for a long time. And what happened was it reminded me that I was a seeker. I think I had spent a lot of time putting out, you know, before that collecting the pieces. But then once you collect them all, then you create something and it's time to give back and, and to put out. And I had done that for a very long time. But this forced me to stop and just go back into receptivity mode. And then again, as the universe conspires with you, Tina, who is the founder of the Metaphysical School, she decided she wanted to do a masterclass. And it was about being a seeker, or at least that was the piece that I was going to be doing. And it really reminded me that, right, yes, I'm a seeker. I, I had really forgotten all of that. That again, that was another hit to remind me that, or to push me perhaps back on that, on that spiral. And 
So I really embraced that. And, and she was asking us to tell our stories about how that had happened. And so it made me revisit that. And then the third, the third piece, as there's always the rule of three, was that one of the books that I actually had, because it's not easy to get English books, they're not that readily available in, in Egypt. And I also wasn't going out to stores and such, but luckily I could download Kindles to my phone. So when I would hear a, a podcast or a lecture talk about something, I could download these books. But I also started to go back and look through the books I had. And I came across this book that I had bought and started reading. And I don't think I finished it because I interact with books. I highlight them, but I also write in the margins. And I have this relationship while I'm reading this book. So I could see pretty much how far I had gotten. And again, I think it wasn't the right time to finish it, but now was. So uh, the book is, is The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. And I highly recommend that if you have not read it. But it's basically talking about history, but how everything changed when the alphabet took over and became prominent and became used or was created, I guess. I, I mean, I, I hesitate to say that because we, we don't really know much about our history. I think it's a lot older. It's obviously a lot older than we think it is. And so who knows what came way, way back before the times that we know nothing about. He was talking about the alphabet and basically how that took us from our right brains being very creative into our left brains and then what happened through history. And it's a wonderful book too because I don't know much about history. And to put it in this context of left brain, right brain, I think the only time I really studied that was when I was studying the Mayan calendar because in the Mayan calendar, they talk about these shifts from left brain to right brain, and now we're, we're in this, this part of the calendar that uses both sides of the brain. That was really the last piece that kind of brought everything together. And after reading that, I really started thinking about, because I'm an author, I'm an author. <laughs> I've written two books, but I don't consider myself a writer. I would say that I'm a storyteller. And this kind of brought it all together to make me realize that the written word is not my way. And the alchemy of dance was actually easy because I basically downloaded the whole thing. But I have 10 books on my computer that I don't seem to be able to finish. And I think one of the reasons is that I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. All of these things coming together. And then, as I said, I got to November when it was time to produce another Sacred Dance Summit. And I just couldn't do it. I just felt that we were saturated because of COVID and the pandemic and people being at home that everyone had gone online and there were so many summits and I signed up for all of them and I never watched anything. I was not inspired to do a summit where I felt like I was going to be just cramming all of this stuff together, bringing these people together and forcing people 
to watch something in a very short period of time. And I hope that if the pandemic has taught us anything, that it's taught us to slow down and to do things with reverence. So that's really where this idea to do the podcast really blossomed, was that I felt if I did one interview a month with someone from the sacred dance arena, that it would give me more time, me and the, the viewers, more time to really savor what it was. I would only be preparing for one interview or conversation, and I could really focus on that, and I could really go into it. And the viewers also would hopefully show up live so that they can ask questions. But if they don't, there's, there's one video to watch. To, to pick up on that. And so that's really how I came from the summit and from the pandemic and everything that has happened. I think it really is a very good illustration of this cosmic dance, this cosmic dance of co-creation. Because I think other things had taken me to doing, to learning skills, like being online or uh, creating a summit or whatever. But I think that there's a bigger picture to this. So someone is asking me here, what brought me to Egypt? <laughs> the goddess brought me to Egypt is, is, the, is the, um, the shortest answer, I suppose. It was my seeking that brought me to Egypt. I have probably been a seeker all my life definitely since I was very young. But uh, like many people, I had this passion for Egypt. And I think I was nine years old when I realized that and then lost it somewhere along the line. Again, this fits into that whole concept of left brain, right brain, because I think when I was very young, I was more in my right brain and pursuing what I felt. And then somehow I got into this whole left brain thing of what am I going to do with my life? And I went off in another direction. Again, I was collecting pieces, which makes sense because I studied things like biochemistry and psychology and, and all these things that, that were little pieces. But then there was that moment where everything changed and I needed to come here. And like many people, men, I think are, are the the gatekeepers and they opened doors for us. And I married an Egyptian and I came to Egypt. And that was what opened the door. But I really think that the call was from the goddess. That that, because when I connected to that, that's when my life really changed. So it was a very practical thing that brought me to Egypt. It was getting married and someone actually bringing me here. But again, it was, I think the calling was, was deeper than that. And that, that all happened during my Uranus opposition was when I became aware of that. But I think I have been a seeker all my life. But the one thing that I want, I want to say about this, I don't want to spend too much time on that. We can always do that some other time. But when I came to Egypt, so again, I'm going back to the tarot and that first line of the tarot, the hierophant or the high priest is really the one that reads the scriptures. So let's call him the researcher. I think that that's what I was when I came to Egypt. I had been studying science, 
and that that was my way. Like I needed to research things. I needed to read things. But when I came to Egypt, all of that was removed. And again, that's one of those challenges that the universe gives you. I came here in 1986. Egypt was not open. Nothing was imported. There were a few bookshops that had books in English, but not very many. There was no internet back then. So I was really cut off and I was forced to learn everything through experience, which I believe is what I was meant to do. So my my learning, my seeking, and, and how I learned things was through personal experience because I didn't have a choice. And had I been somewhere else, had I been in Europe or the US, I would have been reading other people's books and learning things from them, but this was not an option for me. So I had to do it through direct experience. And I think that that was the best way for me to learn. And that is when I stepped in to the high priestess archetype, as opposed to being the hierophant archetype. And I think the the hierophant archetype is very left brain. We're reading scriptures, we're doing research, we're but the the high priestess is completely right brain. It's this connection between you and the divine and and what you bring in, and it's very feminine. And I think that is really why I needed to come to Egypt and why I needed to come at that particular moment in time because it was it was closed. I was leaving something, I was stepping into the crucible and there was no there was nothing from the outside. The the alchemy of dance, this this dance form that I created was done in isolation. And and that was always a motivating factor for me to do the sacred dance summit was I wanted to meet people and I still do and and we're going to I wanted to meet people who had created other dance forms that were similar, not necessarily, they don't have to be similar, but might be similar to what I was doing, but they came to it from a completely different direction. Because after the internet and I started interacting with more people or teaching abroad, people would say, oh, I studied this and I studied that, and I had no idea what they were talking about they would speak as if that was common knowledge. And I had no idea what those were because how, where would I have been exposed to that? After the internet, yes, I can look something up now and, and see what, uh, what that is or you know, research it a bit. I can go back to researching. But before that, I really couldn't. So I was in this isolation, which at the time seemed very frustrating. But now I feel it was really, truly a gift. I think I've spoken about this, the alphabet versus the God. No, I didn't. I didn't explain that. Okay. So going back to this book, the piece that made me realize, or the piece that fits in with the podcast is that I see that I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. And I think that these things that we have available to us now, like podcasts, are again taking us back to the right brain because listening to somebody speak is very right brain. And I think that's one reason that podcasts are very popular right now because it takes us to that other place. It's not so concrete, but we're going back to listening. I I said that 2020 was the 
the reemergence of this the serpent goddess, which is the divine feminine. Podcasts are very feminine in the sense that we're using the right side of the brain. I think I'm much better at speaking than writing. So I think podcasts are a better way for me to communicate. But I also think that they're important. I think that we need to talk. And, and this is why I wanted to do the podcasts live so that people could interact. Because for me, that was the piece that was missing when I went online, mainly it was producing a summit or creating courses. And maybe I'm emailing people back and forth, but I think that the missing piece from podcasts or things that are online is that interaction. So I hope that as we go along, more people will attend live and we will be able to have more interactions. When I have guests, you can pose questions for the guests as well as, as my posing questions for them and to find out what you really want to know from these people. That is, I think, the part that I really became clear of reading the Alphabet versus the Goddess and how this is my part of my path. A funny story, I have three grandchildren and two of them from my daughter. The, the oldest one is a girl, and she often comes and spends the night or spends the weekend. But recently, her little brother is a little bit older. So he's started to every once in a while, he comes and he spends a night as well. So with my granddaughter, we've been doing this for a very long time. So we kind of have routines about what we do. And one of the things that we do is that I tell her stories. So before, as we're going to sleep, when we go to bed, I tell her stories. And I hadn't realized this until the other day when they were both here, that she says, Grandma, will you read me a story? But she really means, will you tell me a story? But see, her language is such that she considers it reading, even though it isn't. It's, it's a whole different process. So my grandson was here and she said, Grandma, you know, tell us a story. So I start telling the story and my grandson sits up in bed and says, book, book. <laughs> and, I, and I said, no, there's no book. I said, you know, light, all the lights are off. And I guess he thought that there must be a book somewhere, but it's dark and he can't see it. So I said, you know, lie down. No, I'm going to tell you the story. There's no book. So I, I carry on telling the story. And then again, he sits up, book, book. And I realize he wants to see the pictures. He thinks there's a book. He can't read. So he's not concerned about where the words are coming from. But he thinks that there are pictures that go along with this story. And he wants to see the pictures. And I said, no, you know. And so he laid down again. And then I guess he was finally convinced that there was no book and there was nothing to look at. So he just laid down and listened to the story. But after that, I thought, wow. Even when we're storytelling to our children or grandchildren, they're expecting something concrete. Even if they don't know how to read and I'm doing the reading, they're still expecting something that they can look at. And I thought, wow, that's really taking away from their own imagination. So again, I really want to try to bring back storytelling and and conversations. I want this podcast to be conversations that other people who are attending live can become a part of by asking questions. 
because I think this is really important. I didn't really see the importance of it before I started reading the alphabet versus the goddess again, but I really do think we need to go back into our right brains. And of course, dance and, and different sacred arts are obviously very right brain, but as a, as a way to impart information or teach, I think that this storytelling or this talking is really important. Okay, this is a very good question. Katerina asks, how do we know that our perception of what the universe is giving us is not skewed? That our interpretation of what's unfolding is right? Is there a right and wrong? I think that this is a skill that we really need to hone because we don't know, or we, we probably do know, but we have been taught in our Western left brain writing and there's one right answer mentality, or, and that's the way we were programmed since childhood. We have been led to believe that there's a right answer. Taking tests, for example. In school, you're always given tests and there is a right answer. And we're meant to study so that we can take in the information and then give back the right answer. Well, obviously, this is this way of, of teaching and learning. If you go back to the time of Socrates, he used to ask the student questions. He wanted to, and he was teaching, he wanted to elicit something from the student. So he would go in there and he would try to pull out what information, because I do think we have all the information. And the truth has a vibration, and we know this. For example, in touch for health, kinesiology, you can tell if someone is lying because you can test them for this. So you test for a strong muscle, and then if you ask them to say something that's not true, they can't lock the muscle, they can't hold it. So when someone is lying or when there is an untruth, the body, the way they, they explain it is they say the body is not in integrity. So if the body is not in integrity, it can't hold this muscle. So truth does actually have a vibration. That's one thing, like I, I understand that you're talking about kind of the bigger truth, but that's one example of that there is a way to know the truth. And I do feel that it's through the body. I do think the truth does have a feeling. And for me, it is a feeling of complete peace. Like when I know that something is true, I have this, just this feeling, it's not joy and it's not, it's just peace. Like it's this just very calm place. But I think this is part of that cosmic dance, is to be able to interact with your body, to be able to experience your body so that you know this. You begin to learn what things feel like. That's where intuition comes in, because we get information all of the time. And this is why I suggest to people when they're doing sacred dance, if you're channeling, if you're doing healing, if you're doing any of these things, to make sure that you're in a sacred space because you want to be sure that you have the right kind of energies coming in. And assuming that you do that, then you can begin 
to practice what does it feel like? Like, what does the truth really feel like? But it's something that does take practice because you have to, you have to go into your body and you have to begin to understand what all the different feelings really are. And, and I still think that dance is another, is another way to really do this. And it's about an alignment. Do you align yourself with the music? Do you align yourself with the other people in the room? There's many ways to do this, but it is a journey because it's very right brain. Women have this gift just to begin with because we are more right brain. And that's the other thing about this book. I'm going <laughs> to keep promoting this book because I think it's a wonderful book. But I believe that he is a scientist. At the beginning of the book, he's explaining all about the brain and how female brains are different than male brains because, and again, this is develops because of hormones. So, so we know this when things are, are first developing in, in the individual and how, you know, the female has more rods or more cones or whatever. I'm not big on details. I'm, a, I'm an analog person. I'm not digital but read the book. And he gives this whole explanation of how the brains are wired differently. And that is why women tend to be more intuitive. These are things that have been shut down because we were taught in school, don't use your intuition. Don't just block that out because that's not going to give you the right answer. Use what science has given you or what somebody decided was the truth, and that's what you need to focus on. So, we need to reclaim that. We need to go back, both men and women. But for women, I think that you know, you already have a, a leg up on this. So, so really find that piece of yourself and do whatever it takes. I think meditation is another really good way to block out the noise and to find that quiet place. So are, is there a right and a wrong? It depends on what you're talking about. But I think there's a truth. There's a truth or there's um, a correct answer in the sense of being correct for what needs to happen next. And I, I, mean, I think that's how this information can be important, which because that's how we started. You're, you're dancing with the universe and you're trying to follow something. I think that if you are in this sacred space and you ask questions, you will get the answers. It's about becoming more attuned. And then you have to reinforce that. Every time you got the right answer and it was the right answer and it was confirmed that it was the right answer, then acknowledge that. When I wrote The Alchemy of Dance, because as I said, the whole thing was downloaded. I came from that researcher background. I can't just like download something and then say, here, you know, I downloaded this, so therefore it must be correct. No. Put yourself in a sacred space, first of all, to know what you're downloading, but I needed confirmation. So I set up that intention that I downloaded this information. I would just write while I was dancing because things were coming in, but that I needed some kind of external confirmation that this was in fact correct, that I wasn't just, you know, it wasn't my imagination. I wasn't just having fun and getting it from I don't know where. And I got that. I made that intention. And I got it. People would call me on the phone or email me articles. They didn't even know what I was doing, 
that would just get these random telephone calls or these random emails. And it was confirmation for whatever it was, because again, I had been a scientist. I couldn't just, now I'm, I'm more capable to just go into that other place, but I also know better what the truth feels like. But at that point, I wasn't. This was back in 2002 or something. This was quite a while ago. I made that intention that I wanted that confirmation. So I think that that's another thing that you can do is to just say, okay, this is what feels right for me, but please, I need some kind of confirmation that I've actually taken the right step or that this is the right answer. And that's that dance that you get the confirmation and you, and it comes and goes and um, work on it. You just, it's a practice. You just have to keep working on it. All right. <laughs> That's a good question. I didn't realize I was putting that up there, but <laughs> again, the universe is conspiring with me. So how do you dance with others when they're on a different wavelength? Well, I think you have to realize that it's your dance and that there may be people who are on a different wavelength, but um, if you are tuning into the universe, I don't think it matters. I think that you will be guided. And, and that is a way to deal with people who are not on the same wavelength because you can't possibly know what they're thinking if, if it doesn't resonate with what you're thinking. But we can dance through it. We can, we can get, because the universe has the bigger picture. So I think that's why it's important to take your guidance from the universe because we're very limited in, in the scope of what we can see. I see so many things that have happened in my life that it, first of all, if I had had a choice, I would not have made that choice, but I didn't, or I didn't feel that I had a choice. And then as time goes on and you do see the bigger picture, you realize, wow, that was, that was, that was the right choice. And had I known what I was doing, I would not have done that, but I didn't. So the universe can be tricky. The universe can play games with us. But again, I do think it's conspiring with us. So yeah, do that bigger dance and take your cues from the universe. Don't take them from other people. Other people are are limited. And I'm not I'm trying to undermine other people. I just think that there is this bigger picture. And if we can do that, we can move forward more quickly. Okay. Karen, yes. Will you be talking more at some point in the future podcast about the connection between sacred dance, alchemy, and the tarot? I would be happy. I'm always happy to talk about anything. <laughs> so definitely, I will take note of that. And if that is something that interests people, I'm very happy to do that. I do talk about it a lot in my book. So there is some stuff there. But Karen, I know you've read my book. So I'll make it a point to do that. I do think that that is, I personally think it's a very interesting topic. I'm going to try to sort of wrap this up. I do want to tell you a little bit about where I'm going with this podcast. So I think you've gotten the idea now of, of the concept of the universal dancer. So what I really want to do not only did the recent events or my stepping back into that, that role of the seeker present itself with that cosmic dance over the summer, but it also really made me want to 
bring everything together for other people. So uh, mentioned I was a Virgo. My, my dear friend Dan First said, Virgos make maps and opinions, which is very true. <laughs> I have many opinions and I have many maps. But I think what that means is that for me, is that when I, when I do something, I want to take other people with me. So if I've learned something or I've had some experience, I want to take other people with me. So I feel that that's something else that I want to do with this podcast. So every month I will be interviewing someone from the field of sacred dance. And those, that's what's up on my website at the moment. So that will be once a month. But I also want to start to, on the in-between weeks, interview other people who are doing other kinds of sacred arts or who are, again, the universal dancer. All those different cards in the tarot, I think, are important pieces to the puzzle. So I would like to bring people in also that are perhaps doing things that are slightly different than sacred dance or talking about ancient wisdom or just different things, different pieces of the puzzle. So right now I'm starting with the monthly interviews or chats with people from sacred dance, but in the future I am going to add things to that and try to expand this, which I think honestly, being somebody who does sacred dance, I think that all of these things can fit in very nicely if that's what you're doing, but it also can expand in different directions. So that's my, my vision for, for where I would like to go with all of, of this in the future. So let me just move on from there and just talk about what's going to be happening in the, the near future. So as I mentioned, you can get more information on my website, universaldancer.com backslash podcasts. And I will continue to update that with the speakers that are coming and just more information. Next month, I will be chatting with Donia McPherson. She's the founder of Dance Meditation. And that's on the 21st of February, same time, 7 p.m. Universal Time, which is at the moment, it's Greenwich Mean Time. And we'll continue with that. When we all change the clocks, then, then things become tricky. So I may change the time, but that we don't, that's not happening right away. So I hope you'll join us on the 21st of February for that. I also would like to tell you that if you would like to download a free copy of my book, Dance is a Spiritual Practice, you can find that on my website and you can download that. Feel free to email me, make comments on this video, and I will go back and answer anything that I didn't get to. I will go back and answer them all. And until then, have a good month. It's a bit less than a month until I hopefully will see you again. But take care. Bye-bye.